This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. As they led Jesus away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Lord, I thank you for the glory of your cross. We will forever praise you for it and reflect upon its meaning. And I ask for your help now as I preach and for all of us that its significance would be brought home to our very hearts. And I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I suspect, especially if you are new or maybe this is your first time coming to a Palm uh, Sunday service, you're already feeling the tension of the move from shouting Hosanna and waving branches and coming in very joyously to then hearing about Jesus not entering into glory before he was crucified and hearing a reading from the passion of Christ, his suffering. This is Palm Sunday, but it's also called Passion Sunday, and it has a, a sharp turn to it. I had an experience with um, students that I was leading back in 2004. I had taken... Um, foolishly maybe, I had taken a ski trip from Texas all the way up to Crested Butte, Colorado, 24 hours on a bus to do a ski trip. And in the retreat, we were staying in like a youth hostel kind of a place. And there were, maybe, I don't remember how many kids, maybe 50 plus leaders. And we, um, we had a, a sequence of talks. The first talk was, who is Jesus? This is basic camp 101, how to do this. Who is Jesus? Consider, you know, who, who is God? What, what do you think about God? And then what is our problem? The sin issue. And then what's the solution? The cross is the solution. And then what do you do to live differently because of that? So four basic talks. It's a typical outline that takes us through the gospel. And it just so happened that in Crested Butte that weekend, the passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's movie, was in the theaters. And we went, you know what? Let's not give the third talk. Let's show it. Let's take all these students down to this little, you know, two-screen cinema in Crested Butte. And we marched out of our little youth hostel and walked down, and the kids were all excited. We're going to the movies, you know? They were excited. They went in. They blew a couple hundred dollars on concessions. They had popcorn and Coke and all kinds of junk food. And they're eating it and excited, right? We're at the movies. And then the movie starts, and it very quickly 
gets dark and it goes to the cross. And about halfway through, nobody's eating anything. You can't hear a single word. And there were no instructions on what to do after. But we came out of that movie having, having the, the crucifixion of Jesus in our face so graphically portrayed. They all walked home in single file looking at their shoes like this, very slowly. And one of them went, can we not do anything? We just want to go to bed. And everyone went to sleep. And that was it for that day. It was just so hard to deal with the cross. And we want to jump past the cross. We want to get to Easter. Um, I read a sermon that one of you sent me this week, and, and they saw a sign in a gift card shop that said, we make Easter easy. I think they meant for buying like gifts and stuff. Um, but we want to make Easter easy, and it's not, because it has to go through the cross to have any sense of meaning. It was by, by his blood on the cross that all the things were accomplished, not the resurrection. They're needed together, and they're always grouped together, but when you read the scriptures about what Jesus has done, it was by his blood that he purchased us. It wasn't by the resurrection. They go together, but it's not easy Easter, because it has to go through Good Friday. The cross is central. In fact, Somebody once said that the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are basically passion narratives with pro, uh, prologues on them. All of his public ministry is just like a prologue to the cross. The cross is the central thing. In fact, it's the central thing of the whole Bible, hinted at all the way back in Genesis 3, when, he's, when God is speaking his curse on the serpent who has deceived Adam and Eve, and he speaks of Adam and Eve's offspring one who will crush his head, but he'll strike his heel. So the serpent strikes the heel on the cross, and on the cross, Jesus crushes his head. Even back in Genesis 3, the cross is central. The whole Bible is centered on that. It's not just in the Gospels. But we like the prologue. We like the stories of Jesus' teachings and his healings and his signs and wonders. I know a guy who is a gifted instructor in, in mechanics, mechanical things. He teaches people how to work on machine parts. And He's really good at it, but he's not a believer. At least he wasn't when I last talked to him. And he said, you know, I'm a, I'm a really good teacher. At least I think I am. People tell me that. And I look at Jesus, and he's just not a very good teacher. He's confusing. He's evasive. He speaks in parables. He doesn't complete thoughts all the time. And um, I said, that's because he didn't come to be a teacher. He came to die. And I would suggest he's the greatest teacher that ever lived as a side project, he came to die, and he managed to teach in such a way that we have this content, and he managed to do it on God's timeline so that his hour came when his hour was supposed to come and not a minute before or after. So he was teaching in an evasive way at times, which offered faith. It invited those who wanted to know to know even more. But it didn't just give the simple answer to those that didn't have faith. He was a master teacher, the best ever. So you stand corrected, but he came to die. That's why he came. In fact, there's no Christianity without a cross. If the cross is missing, you have a different religion. It's not Christianity. Now, I picked as my text this morning a small part of the passion, the, the part where it actually says they crucified him. Good Friday, this coming Friday night, we'll have much more of the passion. So I picked a section that's not part of the Tenebrae service for Good Friday. Um, and it's, a, it's this very short or apparently short road to Calvary. Calvary comes from the Latin word that just means the skull. It was called the place of the skull where they crucified him. That's where we get the, the title Calvary. And it's a very short road. But it's really not a short road to the cross. There's this long shadow. I want to give you an image 
from a pre-Raphaelite artist named Holman Hunt. Some of you know him from his painting, The Light of the Christ. This painting is called The Shadow of the Cross. And I know it's kind of hard to see in here with the lights, but this is a painting that is um, of Jesus in his workshop as a carpenter before his ministry goes public. And he is um, working hard, obviously, sawing something. There are, there are wood filings all over the floor, and he's hot because he's been working hard, so he's stripped down to his waist, and he's pausing. And he's either praising God or he's just kind of resting from his work, and he kind of leans back and puts his arms out, and the light through the window casts a shadow. And the shadow casts right onto the wall where there's a wooden tool rack, and there are all these harsh metal instruments. And what it does is it points to the nail and the hammer, and that crossbeam that he would not very long after this be, be hanging from. And in the, on the left down on the lower is his mother. And she's kneeling down getting something out of a chest. It's the chest, if you look closely, where the gift from the Magi uh, were stored. The gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And I don't know what she's doing in there. It doesn't matter. But her back is turned to us and her head is looking up at the shadow. And I imagine in a bit of shock, she sees this image and she knows because this, this road to the cross wasn't something that just suddenly popped up. I mean, it's talked about throughout the Old Testament. And then even when she dedicated Jesus as a baby in the temple, the prophet Simeon came up to her and blessed God for getting to see his salvation. And then when he handed the baby back to Mary, he said, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now, I don't know if she knew exactly that it was going to be crucifixion, but this painting is pretty powerful. It's an awesome one. In fact, just leave it up there while I keep preaching as we think about the shadow of the cross. Because Palm Sunday and Passion Sunday does that. It, it's pointing us towards Good Friday. It's helping us think about the importance of the cross and what is coming. Now, Jesus himself, at the age of 12, was in his, quote, his father's house studying and talking with the rabbis. And when the whole company and caravan of family go home, he stays back there. And, and Mary and Joseph search for three days to find him. And when they find him, he says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? I suspect that even at the age of 12, he figured out, one, he was supposed to be doing his father's business, and two, that there was going to be suffering in this cost, in, in this work. There was going to be a cost to it. Now, I have to guess that because there's just so much in the scriptures that point to a suffering servant, this one of God who's going to bring salvation. And I think he knew that. In fact, Isaiah 53 is the burning heart of Scripture. It's so powerful. And one, one verse says this, But he, the suffering servant, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. By his wounds we are healed. Jesus knew that Scripture well even as a young boy of 12. And then by the time that he is in his public ministry, he has experiences like the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John, and he go up on top of a mountain. And, and I don't know how this works metaphysically, but the spirits, the, the souls of Moses and Elijah are there in a great glory. And it says that they were speaking to him about his exodus. Not Moses' exodus from Egypt, Jesus' exodus and his death on the cross. So they were encouraging him and talking about what's coming up, what's about to happen. And then three times in his public ministry, Jesus, the great teacher, with no concealment whatsoever, says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be crucified and on the third day rise. Three times he tells his disciples that, and they just can't get it. They can't get their head wrapped around it. 
But Jesus knew what was coming. His mission was to die. It was not an accident. It was the plan. Now, there are two interactions on this road that we just read. One is with this guy, Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is modern-day Libya, so northern Africa. So if you, if you cut across the Mediterranean Sea from basically Italy, go straight south until you hit land, that's the coastal region where Cyrene was. So Simon of Cyrene was an African man who had traveled very far to be here in the holy city. My guess is he was a Jewish person who had saved up a lot of money and a lot of time to be able to travel that far and, and thought, I just want to get to Passover once in my life, make pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And he comes in from the country and is greeted with something he did not expect. The Roman guards with their long spear reached out and touched him on the shoulder and said, you, you will serve. Come over here. Pick up that cross. Because you see, Jesus had suffered so greatly already that he was spent and he couldn't carry his own cross. And so he stumbled and they had Simon carry and it says behind Jesus. So Simon walks behind Jesus. He watches this. Now I suspect he became a Christian because of it. I suspect as he watched the way that Jesus died and what happened after that, he became a believer. And in Mark's gospel, do you know that they name, Mark names his sons as Alexander and Rufus? When, when Mark tells this, they got Simon of Cyrene, whose sons are Alexander and Rufus. In other words, Mark was saying, those of you that know Alexander and Rufus who are still alive when I'm writing this, go ask them if these things are true. You see, because they had become believers. They were central to the life of the church. The church knew his sons. And I suspect it might also be the one that's mentioned by the Apostle Paul in Romans at the end, in Romans 15. He talks about Rufus, um, who was chosen, and then his mother, who is like a mother to me, is what the Apostle Paul says. So this was a powerful experience that happens here. And he watches Jesus in the way that he interacts, even as he's going to his death. Women are mourning for him and crying out, and Jesus isn't preoccupied with himself. He, he speaks to them, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. He's pointing out the huge injustice of what's occurring. He says, if this is what they do when the wood is green, imagine what they'll do when it's dry. In other words, the Romans are killing an innocent man, and look at how graphically they're doing it. What do you think is going to happen when you guilty Jewish people in this city revolt? They're going to come in and destroy it which is what, exactly what happened in 70 AD. This is in, a, a huge injustice. So I think it's interesting that the four Gospels simply say, when they got to the place of the skull, they crucified him. That's it. Everybody knew what that meant. Everybody knew how harsh and cruel crucifixion was. It was designed by Rome to be a way to deter other criminals. And so specifically, they would... Once somebody was accused and, and found guilty and condemned to crucifixion, they would strip, strip him. They would beat his back so that the cross hurt. They would make him carry it on a long route through the city so that everyone that saw it would be afraid to commit a similar crime. It was a deterrent of sorts, and it had huge shame. And then when they got to the place where they, that he was going to be crucified, they had already dug a hole, and they had the tall post, like a telephone pole with a notch cut in it and he's carrying the crossbeam. They would put that on and attach it, and then they would lay him down and attach him, sometimes with, with ropes, and in Jesus' case, with nails. We know that because he went to Thomas after he's resurrected and said, look at the marks. See, see where they put the nails through my hands. 
and they had a little block of wood on there so he could support himself so he didn't tear off of the cross. How awful this was. And then once he's attached to it, now keep in mind, he's totally naked. We see the artwork that has a loincloth covering him, but that wasn't the way they did it. That's why they, these soldiers that do this all the time, you know, it's just another crucifixion. So they're casting lots for that, that undergarment that's a single woven piece. And he's totally naked. And then they hoist that cross up. And once it gets high enough, it goes boom and falls into the hole. And then he's there for a long time. Church history tells us some people took a week to die. A week. And if it was the wrong time of year, you're out there in the hot sun or you're in the freezing cold of night. Jesus was so spent because of what he'd already been through, it took him only a few hours and he died in the afternoon. Uh, It's just, it's hard to think about it. It's hard to think about it. But why? Why did he die? What's, what's the point here? The creed, the, the ancient Nicene Creed tells us for us and for our salvation he came down. It was for us. He came for us. And last week, Dan gave a great sermon with an illustration of a substitution. That cross belonged to us, and he stepped in out of love and took it. He took it for us. So Dan showed us um, being black in our sin and Jesus being pure and white in his, and then the switch that happened where Jesus took our sin upon himself, and then we get his righteousness. Now, I'd like to suggest to you there are a number of other things that were being accomplished on the, in that substitution. I'm going to give you five. These are, I don't like theories. I don't like the word theories of atonement. These are images of atonement, and they're found throughout the scriptures. And the first one is a big word, propitiation. The word propitiation picks up the image of a temple sacrifice, an altar. Not like this, the kind that they actually sacrifice blood sacrifices on. Propitiation means to appease the wrath. So the cross appeased the wrath of God. He is angry about sin. His wrath is being poured out against sin, and it was all directed onto Jesus in our place. He was a sacrifice for sin to appease wrath. That's really hard to get our heads wrapped around. But John, the apostle, writes in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, he says, if if anyone sins, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the one that stands between God's wrath and sin. It's only because of the cross that we are not also smitten, struck down. Second image is from the marketplace. So that first one is from the temple and sacrifice. The second image is from the marketplace, the word redemption. We hear that a lot. He redeemed us on the cross. Redemption is the idea of buying back a slave or paying the price so that that the slave can be set free. Or ransomed is another word. Ransomed out of this slavery. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve, to give him his life as a ransom for many. So when Jesus went on that cross, he paid a price to get you freedom and me freedom. We were slaves to sin, and we've been set free because of what he's done. We no longer have to live in those old patterns. We've been ransomed out of it and given a new life in Christ. So that's an image from the marketplace. Another image is from the courtroom. Justification. You have been justified. So Romans 5.1 says, we have been justified by faith, and now we have peace with God. So imagine a guilty person standing before a judge, and the gavel comes down and goes, you are innocent. But see, they were guilty. How does that work? Well, the judge's own son goes and pays the price on the cross. So he says, Jesus, you're guilty even though you're sinless so that they can be declared justified in you. 
That's an image from the courtroom. It's a legal metaphor. And then there's the image that we like the best, I think, because it's the softest. The image from the family, reconciled. Picture an estranged father and son or mother and daughter or whatever. And through the cross, we have been brought back into a relationship where there was conflict and there was exile. They were cast out of the garden in in Genesis 3, separated by our sin. Um, Ephesians 2 puts it this way. You were separated. You were strangers. You were alienated from the covenants of God. But Christ reconciled us to God. Ephesians 2 talks about that. So whereas we were lost, we were kicked out, now we are welcomed back in. Not only that, but we're declared to be adopted into the family. We're declared to be sons and daughters, like the video Dan showed last week. His son had to die so we could become sons and daughters. We are now reconciled. That's the image of the family. So we have the image of the temple and sacrifice for wrath. We have the image of the marketplace and buying slaves back and redeeming them. We have the image of the courtroom being found guilty and then declared innocent and justified. And we have the image of the family reconciled. The relationship is restored. And one final one, we have the image of the battlefield, a war that we're in, and that you have victory. Colossians 2, 14 and 15 says, he, was nailed, he nailed our debt to the cross, disarming the rulers and the authorities. He's not talking about Rome. He's not talking about governmental authorities or, or police or something. He's talking about principalities and powers of darkness in the spiritual realm, cosmic level, Satan, demons. There are those that stand and accuse us, and Satan thought he was winning. I mean, this is the great deception of all time. He thought he was winning, and he lost the entire war on that cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, he said, so are you, Satan. You are finished. Now, he's still doing stuff, but read ahead. Read into Revelation, and look what happens. At a certain point, when God declares it's time, he's going to be picked up and cast into the lake of fire forever, and there will be no more evil, none of that stuff. So you are more than a conqueror in Christ. You are victorious. There is a battle that has been won on your behalf. It's done. So that's the image from the battlefield. So we have all these images tied up in the cross. So why did Jesus come? Well, he came to die. And what happened when he died? Well, he, he did all those things. He handled the wrath of God. He bought us out of slavery. He, he got us out of the courtroom as off the hook, totally. He reconciled us into a new family and a royal family at that. And then he defeated the enemy of our souls and said, you're a conqueror. The cross does all of that for us. There's no easy Easter. Hopefully we don't want an easy Easter. What do we do with this? Well, when we recognize he did all of this for us, all of it, we should place our trust in him. He's that loving. He's that good. And we should be grateful for what he's done and live it back to him. Although we can never pay the debt. We can never repay that. It was too great. And we'll spend the rest of eternity reflecting on this. I mean, we can, a human, one of us could experience a similar level of physical pain, but none of us knows what it's like to have perfect eternal communion in the Trinity and then feel that separation that happened on the cross. The anguish he experienced, none of us will ever fully understand that. He took the sins of the world upon himself in our place. And so, we need to give him our lives. We need to align our lives with what his word says. We need to live for his glory. We need to tell others. We need to do whatever he says because he's earned it. And he's so gracious and so kind to us. That's what Passion Sunday is about. That's what Good Friday is about. 
I want to encourage you to come Good Friday. I want to encourage you to walk through that. And then when you get to Easter Sunday and declare, Alleluia, He is risen, it will mean so much more because you've spent time here. It's all about the cross. We need to keep focused here. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we don't understand, but we are grateful. Thank you for all of these benefits and many others that you've won for us. And Father, I thank you for sending your Son, and I thank you for this great victory. Lord, I pray for anyone in here who has not trusted in you, that having reflected now upon your cross, that you would give the gift of faith, that they would pray and accept you, ask you to be the Lord of their life. Lord Jesus, all of us do that. We declare that you are our God. We worship you. Thank you for healing us. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen. I invite you.